she says, my name is Esther, and I was born and raised in a Muslim family, and I did many things that brought great shame on me and shame upon my family. Shame is often prevalent in many Muslim cultures, like, like really most non-Western cultures generally. Honor is something that's cherished above everything else. Actions that violate the family's honor or that violate the community's honor often become a source of tremendous, even crippling shame. And many live under this crushing weight because uh, they failed to meet their family's expectations. They've disregarded their parents' wishes. They've embraced forbidden lifestyles. They've turned from Islam. Esther says, I did many things that brought great shame on me and that brought shame on my family. But then I came to understand that Isa, that is Jesus, came to take away all of my shame. And now he set me free. And now I follow him. It's a story I've heard many times. And we fail to grasp the gospel's power if we filter it simply through a Western mindset. Uh, if we fail to see it through the lens of the honor and shame-based culture that first century Jews lived in and that half the world still lives in today. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, just two verses, 10 and 11, as God speaks into this experience that we all have, whether we believe it or not, this experience of shame. This is Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, the word of God. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. What do we see here? We see, first of all, the reality of shame. That's what's being addressed here when the author tells these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish followers of Jesus, that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's, he's bringing in the experience of shame that, that, that Jesus is lifting them out of. And we might expect for Jesus to be ashamed of us, honestly, because we all experience it. It's, it's that shame is that feeling when you want to hide, when you want to be under a rock. You don't want anybody to see you or to know you or know anything about you. You wish you could just tear your page out of human history. Shame is that thing when you're turning red all over and you realize that, that people are looking at you and despising you and looking down upon you and viewing you as pitiable or less than everybody else. Uh, I remember the shame I felt. It was the worst wedding ever, and I was the officiant. It was in a country club in St. Louis, which already had me feeling out of place, and, uh, and I barely knew the couple. I had met them a couple times. I was doing their wedding as a favor, and, um, and as I started my wedding homily. Everything was smooth until this point when I accidentally, I had the bride and the groom, and I accidentally called the groom the best man's name. Tongues were already wagging. 
And then that freaked me out and threw me off so badly that at the end of the service, when I, when I, it was my joy to present to you all for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. And then people started yelling me their name. And I hunted down um, one of the uh, people, you know, holding the, 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 the champagne, grabbed one, threw it down my throat, and went to my car right away, and went home and wanted to die. I just wanted to die. I did not want to exist. It was the most crippling shame. I had ruined somebody's best day ever, you know? Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is when you do something sinful, and God convicts you of that, or your conscience convicts you of that. Um, guilt says, I did a bad thing. Shame says, I'm a screw-up. See, guilt applies to our actions. Shame applies to our person. It's not that I ruined their wedding, but I'm the kind of person who would ruin their wedding. Uh, it, you know, we may feel shame for any of a number of reasons. It may be because of something we've done that we're ashamed of, uh, that sticks to our person and we can't seem to get, let go of it. Um, it may be that we feel shame because of things that we've left undone. Sometimes we feel shame, um, you know, because of what we've become, what we see when we look in the mirror, when we examine our lives, what we see in ourselves that makes us feel ashamed. Um, sometimes we feel shame because of how others see us when they project onto us shame. That's the experience of, of being shamed when others, you know, project that humiliation upon to us because of what they see in us, how they view us. Um, sometimes we experience shame because of, not because of what we've done, but because of what's been done to us. Um, the trauma or the abuse, having been humiliated in front of other people. So where does shame come from? You know, shame we read about in the third chapter of the Bible. It's been around since the dawn of human existence. Our first parents in Genesis chapter 2 are, are in a garden, and God is there, and he's walking with them, and he's talking with them, and they're completely buck naked, and they don't even feel shame, it says. There's nothing to be ashamed of. They were perfect. They were holy. They were righteous. There was nothing wrong with their bodies. There was nothing wrong with their sexuality. There was nothing wrong with their behavior or their thought life or, you know, how they related to one another with perfect love and charity all the time until our first parents declared their independence from God and they took from a tree that had been forbidden and God had told them, don't do that because you'll, you'll, that's the tree of knowing good and evil. And so they didn't really know evil until they declared our independence from God. And then we read that they were naked. They realized they were naked and they felt ashamed. For the first time in their existence, they were now defective. They were no longer in relationship with God. They were on their own. And they realized how defective they were. They hadn't been defective moments earlier, but now they feel this crushing burden of shame. And they start grabbing fig leaves. And God, in his mercy, sews them animal skins together to wear. Uh, none of us start out in the garden anymore. 
we humans all declared our independence because they were our representative and were their descendants and when they got kicked out of the garden we all got kicked out of the garden and we're all born into a world in which we experience shame because we are defective it's one of the basic differences between a, a christian narrative about human existence and a worldly one as the world tries to say there's nothing wrong with us uh, have you looked in a mirror have you looked at your soul there's everything wrong with us. We feel shame for a reason, because we're so much less than the best of humanity, and we feel it, and it crushes us. That's where it came from, and so it's this universal experience, this reality of shame. So how do we try to manage our shame? How do we try to medicate it? There are different ways that people try to medicate the shame. The way that these first recipients, these Jewish believers in the first century would have been tempted and were tempted to regulate or medicate their shame was by abandoning Jesus and returning to Judaism. You see, they, they were Jews who had followed Jesus and they were living in a secular pagan world that hated them because they were Jews. And yet when they were with other Jews, they were hated because they were following Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities had declared that to be forbidden. And so no matter where they went, Everybody hated them. Everybody looked down upon them. Everybody was disgusted by them. They had lost their families. They had been expelled from the synagogue. They had been torn out of, of the entire uh, Jewish business, cultural, and, and economic system. And they were on their own. They were nothings. They were despised. And all they had to do to get their family honor back was to deny Jesus. And the temple was probably still standing at this point make a trip to Jerusalem, sacrifice an animal, get clean, and be embraced once again and rehabilitate your honor and your family's honor and your name and you get your business back and you get your synagogue back and you get your family back and you get the in-laws back and all of it and everybody's suddenly okay with you. Religion would medicate their shame. It would take it away and that's the temptation they're facing here is to return to Jew Jewish religious uh, rituals. All you have to do is deny you need a savior. All you have to do is insist that you're one of the good people. Do some ritual. Live upright. Uh, live up to the external standards of a religious community. These are religious strategies to medicate shame. And it's not just in Judaism. Uh, beware of counterfeit Christianity, which does the same thing. It tells you if you just live outwardly according to these man-made regulations and, and, and hide everything that's wrong about you and, and act like you don't need a savior. There's nothing to forgive. I'm upright. And, and, and do some rituals and, 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 and then it'll take care of your shame. What it actually does is it seals that shame inside and keeps you from ever being able constructively to engage with it and address it. There are also, as there are religious ways of self-medicating shame, there are also irreligious ways of medicating shame. These are ones that we might be more familiar with. The world's, you know, in the Western world, the, the, the most obvious one is to deny that there's anything to be ashamed of. You know, it's the, the activist who throws their fist in the air and says, there's nothing wrong with me! Except your anger. Um, you know, it's the world's way of dealing with shame by denying, particularly our sexual fallenness, and, and sexuality has been a locus of shame from the garden, from the very, very beginning. Uh, I remember one pastor saying that usually when somebody who's faithfully at church every week suddenly disappears for months on end, it's usually because of sexual sin he found after decades of ministry because that in particular makes us feel such shame that we feel we need to hide. 
There are different ways. We can deny it, but we're not really going to convince ourselves if we deny it. I remember sitting in a cafe once waiting to meet with somebody, and there were um, two middle-aged women who sat down at a table next to me, and I really wasn't trying to eavesdrop. It's just that they were very boisterous, outgoing, and loud. And after some catching up, they were obviously old friends who hadn't caught up in a while. One of them says to the other one, so who are you sleeping with these days? Oh, I'd rather not say. You can tell me. We've known each other for decades. Who are you sleeping with these days? I'd rather not say. What, is he married? Um, you know, he was very clear. She was experiencing huge amounts of shame and feeling a need to hide, to hide from her shame. Um, and I actually think she was probably closer to the kingdom than the other one because she would have known she needs a savior. She has things she's ashamed of, and she hasn't, you know, calcified her soul against it. Um, you know, our, our world denies shame. Another way is by faking it, pretending we have nothing to be ashamed of, even though we don't believe it ourselves. Um, you know, that to fake it is to pretend we've got it together, pretend we're successful, pretend we're good people. Um, you know, this is sort of the 1950s Hollywood vision of Father Knows Best, Ward Cleaver, 1950s image, sort of the Norman Rockwell perfect family around the dinner table on Thanksgiving with this perfect turkey going down and all the children are just so well behaved. Uh, nobody's had a family like that. And I just read a book about 1950s Hollywood and all these squeaky clean boy next door folks, they were sleeping with everybody. You know, so long as it's just it's everybody. They, but they were faking it. You can deny your shame saying there's nothing wrong with me or you can fake it and pretend to be unshameful uh, or you, you can hide it or more accurately hide yourself. Um, you know, don't let anybody get close enough to you to see you as you really are because they might reject you. There are all sorts of ways to hide it. It's the makeup, the sunglasses, and the ball cap if you need it. You can use a false name when you're doing business that you're ashamed of. You can take off your wedding ring before you walk into the bar. You can do whatever it is that you're ashamed of in a neighborhood or part of town where nobody is going to know you or recognize you. Uh, you can hide it by withdrawing from other people so that nobody knows. You can hide it by uh, wiping out your internet search history. We all know the ways that we can go about hiding our shame, hiding ourselves. Um, the temptation to hide is so powerful. Um, John Perkins, the Christian uh, leader John Perkins, is, has written about his own painful uh, experience of just the worst racism that the American South ever had to offer. And in his book, uh, Dream With Me, he describes how his resentment of poor white people began to change when he started to see how desperately they were trying to hide their shame. He writes, in New Hebron, Mississippi, I grew up around poor whites who felt they were better than black people and expected us to move out of their way when they were walking down the street. They were oppressors, and common knowledge through the years was that in rural areas, poor whites sought to become sheriffs, cops, or guards in order to have some power over society, and so we didn't have a great relationship with them. To be honest, I had never given a second thought toward a poor white person. I still regarded them negatively. But over the years, Christ began transforming Perkins and his view in particular of poor white people. 
He tells a story about watching white people come to a church site that distributed food for the poor. He writes, sometimes when I visited the church, I would just hang back and watch the people come and go as they picked up food items. I always found the behavior of the white people quite curious. Their body language showed so much shame. One would almost think they were stealing the food. I noted also that these white folks really didn't have a voice or anyone in power to stand up for them, that they too were victims exploited politically by those in power. And many times the man of the family would not even go inside to get the food. Rather, he would sit outside in the truck and send his wife in to get charity. He writes, I've gone from almost hating them when I was young and angry and they were bigoted and violent to now genuinely loving poor white people. See, poverty can bring tremendous feelings of shame in a culture that, a man, that says that a man has to be able to take care and provide for his family. Perkins could see how poverty crushed the spirits of poor whites. He could see the crippling sense of shame and the way they tried to hide themselves by sending their spouse in instead of themselves. We self-medicate our shame from other, you know, by, by trying to hide from others, trying not to be seen or exposed. There, there are all these ways that we medicate our shame. We can do the religion thing, the ritual, the, the, the pretending to be righteous, the, the you know, uh, uh, building our status in the religious community so that we look like the perfect religious people. We can medicate our shame in irreligious ways, denying that there's anything wrong with me or faking it or hiding so that nobody sees me. There are all ways we medicate our shame, and yet, sadly, they all fail us, every one of them. And that's why this author to the Hebrews is, is begging them to see Jesus, who scorned the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. See, when we, when we do the religion thing, what we're actually doing is inoculating our souls against grace. You know, the way, you know, old school vaccines worked is they put a dead or weakened version of a virus into your arm and you build up an immunity to it. And when you inject a dead or weakened form of Christianity into your arm, you are inoculating yourself against Jesus Christ. And you will end up bitter and narrow and self-righteous and lost. You know, when we try to hide, we end up being unknown. And you can put on a mask that looks really nice, but everybody's going to love the mask and not you. And you will die unknown and unloved because you will have never let anybody close enough to see what you're ashamed of. You know, if we deny that there's anything wrong with us, then we're hardening our hearts to the, our desperate need for a savior. And when we fake it, then we end up enslaved to whatever it is that we use to fake it. We become enslaved to our success or our image or our career, and when those things are taken from us, we are crushed and become a zero. It fails no matter what. And this should make you angry, I'll be honest. The, the reality of shame, of being fallen and broken and so much less than we ought to be, and the fact that we feel that, it should make you angry. Uh, but what do you do with your anger? I'll give you some boxes. You can direct your anger at God, 
And the Psalms actually do give us permission to process our anger with God in a way that actually humbles us and allows us to let God in to minister and change our perspective and actually grow our love for God uh, and our humility and dependence on Him. But long-term raging against God is not very sustainable. Uh, you don't want to take that into eternity. Um, you can direct your anger instead of at God, you can direct it at other people, at the world, who make you feel so shamed because they're all so perfect and you're so not. And yet what that's going to do is that anger is going to fill you with resentment and hatred and vengeance. Instead of directing it at being mad at God or mad at the world, you can be mad at yourself. And yet, long term, what that does is you spiral downward into depression and despair and self-hatred and ultimately self-destruction. And so instead of directing your anger at God or other people or yourself, I'm going to suggest directing your anger at the real cause of the shame, which is the fallenness, the broken relationship with God, the fact that humanity is desperately damaged, and, and, and the sin that separates us from God that brought about our fallenness and our consequent shame. See, only this last option of directing our anger at the brokenness, at the fallenness, offers us any hope. If you sh channel it elsewhere, you're going to end up destroying yourself, but if you channel it the fallenness, then there's hope because of Jesus who came to reconcile us to God and ultimately when he returns to make everything new and right. And that hope that someday everything will be made right has a way of working itself backward into the present era and giving us hope because in Hebrews we see an unashamed Jesus. He's not ashamed of you. We read, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. You know, every extended family seems like has someone that they kind of hope doesn't show up for the holidays. Uh, you know, it could be that uncle, that cousin, that in-law who um, always has strong political opinions or always wants to argue or who has bad hygiene or smokes like a chimney in your house and, and drinks like a fish around your children. Uh, the guy who says all the inappropriate jokes that you want to hide your children from. Every family has one, most. And if you're a Jesus follower, Jesus is speaking to you here in this text. And by his spirit now, he's speaking to you, he's calling your name, and he's saying, you're not that person. I am not ashamed of you. I'm proud of you. I delight in you. I am not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed call us brothers. There's a, a TikTok video a while back. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a TikTok person generally, but I saw it was hilarious. Somebody posted it to Twitter. That's my, my venue. Um, and, uh, and it's the switchboard in heaven. And the person's at the switchboard, you know, plugging in things, taking calls, you know, prayers up to heaven. And they're like, hello, heaven. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one's forgiven. Okay, thank you. Hello, heaven. Yes, that one's forgiven too. Thank you. Hello, heaven. Yes, that one's also forgiven. Uh, he heaven. Oh. Mm. Let me check. Oh, that one is forgiven. You know, it's this point that there's nothing that's not forgiven. He delights in us. We're, we're covered fully, finally, forever. And yet there's more than forgiveness because Jesus isn't just forgiving us. Because you can forgive somebody and still really be embarrassed by being around them. But Jesus says, you're also, I'm not ashamed of you. 
Jesus is not ashamed, we read. It's the unashamed Jesus who delights in us. He's not ashamed because it's a family commitment. He calls us brothers. Um, you know, he says, both those, the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. And when he calls us brothers, he's not being sexist there. He knows that he is writing uh, to a mixed group of men and women and children, and they all would have been in church together, and he's writing to all of them, calling them brothers for a reason. Because in Judaism, uh, in the first century, daughters did not get an inheritance. Sons got an inheritance. Daughters got married off. And Jesus is saying, women, you who follow me, kids, you who follow me, you have the inheritance of sons. You have the status of sons. I'm not marrying you off. You're staying in the family. You're getting the inheritance. We're all brothers. He's not ashamed to call us that. Uh, we're of the same family, he writes. And Jesus, our big brother, has uh, uh, was certainly morally without sin, but here the text says that he himself had to be perfected through suffering. Uh, it's confusing, but the way it's written here, it, he writes, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, it previously said that about Jesus, should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, don't mishear what the text is saying. The letter to Hebrews consistently states that Jesus was without sin in every way. Um, however, there's a difference between an untested obedience and a tested obedience. Jesus had to be tested just as Adam was tested in the garden. And just as Adam failed in the garden, so Jesus succeeded in the face of his temptations. Uh, he was tested and he gained victory over temptation. And, and obedience requires suffering. You know, when you're tempted, the longer you are faithful, the more suffering uh, you experience until you either give in to it or, or it lifts. And Jesus took that temptation all the way to the very end, suffering the most possible in order to be obedient. You know, when he was uh, fasting for 40 days and nights, you know, don't think that Jesus somehow didn't feel hunger. Uh, there's a pain and a suffering involved in that, and yet he did it all the way through to the very end and became perfect through suffering. Uh, you know, he was perfected. He, he went from untested obedience to proven obedience and therefore passed the test and is therefore worthy to be called the author of our salvation. And yet that process for Christ was humiliating. It involved living in a world filled with temptation, a world filled with suffering. It involved facing down natural human hunger. It involved whips and scourging, being mocked and being lied about, being humiliated and stripped upon the cross, being suffocated to death. Jesus knew what it was like to not yet be perfected, to still be in the process, not having yet passed the test, and to see it through to the very end, crossing the finish line, and, and thereby uh, uh, conquering shame itself. Jesus became perfect through suffering, and therefore he is qualified to be the author of our salvation, and therefore he can also sympathize with us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the struggles of our soul, he is faithful. And so he now has this family commitment. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. In Jewish culture, of course, the oldest son had the responsibility of looking after the rest of the family. 
And if the younger son, for example, walked away, uh, the older son had to bring him back. If the younger son ended up in debt, the older brother would have to, to pay his debt if necessary to secure his release for the sake of the family's honor and name and for the sake of his siblings who he was bound as eldest brother to take care of. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do. When we walk away, he comes after us. And when we have debts we cannot pay before a holy and righteous God, he steps forward to pay them on the cross and to pay them in full so that Jesus releases us from that shame by covering over our sins and paying our debts by also adopting us into the family of the Father, by making us children of the Father and siblings of Jesus who have a name and identity that cannot be taken away. Uh, you know, modern identities are inherently fragile. You know, if you build your identity on your career and then you lose your career, you become a nothing. Your identity is gone. And you wonder whether life is even worth it. If you build your identity on your family and then your kids hate you and your spouse leaves you, then you're destroyed because modern identities are fragile. If you build your identity on your political perspective and your political party and then you get kicked out of the White House or kicked out of Congress, then it crushes you and you become very angry because somebody is, has challenged your identity. If you build your identity on physical beauty, then your hair thins and you get wrinkles and you look in the mirror and you see the loss, then you've built your identity on something that's crumbled. Modern identities are fragile. Jesus is no longer fragile. He was fragile for us and then rose. And when you are adopted into the family of God, that is an identity as a son of God, as a sibling of Jesus, with the status of a brother and an heir that cannot be taken away from you by failure, by business loss, by medical condition, or even by death itself. It is a powerful identity that you can never be, that can never be taken from you, not by life and not by death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus further addresses our shame we see by making us holy he refers to us those who are made holy and i think that might be commentators differ but i think it might be something of a double entendre in that as believers we are already declared holy in jesus the bible calls us saints which literally means holy ones uh, because you have been clothed in the righteousness of jesus and so you have Jesus' report card, his resume. It's as if you had fed the 5,000 and you raised Lazarus from the dead. And you always did what pleased the Father because you were united to Jesus, who is all of these things, and you're therefore clothed in him and in his righteousness, and, and, and therefore it's justification, and therefore holy. And yet there's also the process aspect here because he talks about Jesus' process of being made perfect, and that's the same process that God has us in. Uh, he's bringing many sons to glory, we read. Glory when, when sanctification, Christian change, becoming Christ-like, that process will culminate, and we too will cross the finish line, and we will be transformed, and you're going to be holy, not just by declaration of God, but in practice. And a day is going to come, if you are trusting your life to Jesus, if you are following him, a day is going to come when you will look in the mirror and you will see nothing to be ashamed of because you will be brought to glory. Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. He suffered to bring us to glory, and he is not ashamed to call you his brothers. In his book, Jesus, the Middle Eastern Storyteller, 
uh, Gary M. Burge, professor of New Testament at Wheaton, shared a story told to him by a theology professor who had worked in Jerusalem and who was fluent in Arabic and had access to conversations with Arab Christians in Jerusalem. And it was in the 1990s in Jerusalem's famed Hadassah Hospital that an Israeli soldier, a young Israeli soldier, lay dying. He had contracted HIV and had developed AIDS as a result of his liaisons with other men. And this was before protease inhibitors enabled people to survive long-term with undetectable levels of the virus. And this gay Israeli soldier was now in the late stages of the disease terrible course. His father was a very famous Jerusalem rabbi and both his father and the rest of his family had disowned them and would not even visit him in the hospital. He was condemned to die in his shame, and the nursing staff on his floor knew his story, and so they all carefully avoided the room. Everyone was simply waiting for his life to expire. The soldier happened to be part of a regiment that patrolled the occupied Palestinian territories, and honestly, his unit was known for its ferocity and its violence. The Palestinians living there hated these troops. They were merciless. They could be cruel. Their green berets always gave them away. And one evening, the soldier went into cardiac arrest. All the usual alarms went off, but the nursing staff did not respond. Even the doctors looked the other way. Not one member of the medical staff was willing to come to this soldier's aid. Yet on that floor, there was another man at work, a poor Palestinian janitor who was also a Christian. He knew this soldier's story as well and also knew the meaning of the emergency. And incredibly, he was a man whose village had been attacked by this soldier's unit. When the Palestinian heard the alarm and witnessed the neglect, his heart was filled with compassion for this gay Israeli soldier who is deeply ill with AIDS. This janitor dropped his broom. He alone entered that soldier's room, and he attempted to resuscitate the man by giving him CPR. You can almost imagine how many social taboos he would have to face to place his mouth onto the mouth of that soldier's to breathe for him. An Arab giving mouth to mouth to an Israeli, a victim to an enemy soldier, a Christian to a Jew, a straight man, to a gay man in a 1990s Israeli hospital, a healthy man to a man dying of AIDS, a poor man to the son of a prominent rabbi. The scene was remarkable. A poor Palestinian man, a victim of this soldier's violence, now trying to save this enemy while those who should have been doing this stood on the sidelines and did Friends, what that Palestinian janitor did is what Jesus did for you. Only he didn't just give you mouth to mouth. He got on top of you and extracted the disease out of you and into himself. Indeed, he took into himself all of our shame and all of our sin. Not only what we've done, but what we've become. Every defect in, 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 in of, of all of humanity throughout time, Jesus absorbed into himself on the cross, and he allowed it to crush him as even the Father turned his face away 
and poured out upon Christ the judgment that should have come to us. And he did that because he loves you. And he was not willing to spend eternity without you. He loves us. That's what Jesus did. He died for us when we were his enemies, that he might clothe us in his righteousness, bring us to glory, bring us into family as brothers of Jesus and as sons of the Father, as those with a future, with an inheritance, and with an identity that can never be taken away, not even by death. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the power to release us forever from the crippling power of shame because in Jesus, we can still be defective and yet be loved. And Jesus can see you all the way down and say, I still want to be in relationship with you. Jesus, the guy in the stands saying, that's mine, that's my son, who loves us as only a brother and a father could love. Let's pray.